it's a bit of a whirlwind week when we think about the Easter week. Last time that we gathered, of course, was Palm Sunday. And we remembered Jesus and a triumphant entry. And we remembered the significance of that day and why that day is, is so important, why that day is something triumphant, something to celebrate, the, the culmination, the, the, the fulfillment of so many prophecies taking place. Jesus purposefully placing himself at a time and a place and a situation which would have rung so many bells in the minds of the people watching. Jesus claiming his place. And then, of course, during the week... <coughs> We, we read about um, the, the moment where he went into the temple and he turned over the tables of the, the moneylenders, disgusted that the house of God had been turned into, into a, a den of thieves. He, he taught. There was a lot of teaching that took place that week. There was a lot of challenge coming from, from the Pharisees. There was healing. There was all sorts of things that went on. Jesus was a busy man that week. And then, of course, it was all, it was all leading up to the, the Passover feast. That was the whole point of them having come to Jerusalem. That was why Jerusalem was so full of people at that time. Because, because last night, Thursday night, Maundy Thursday, that was the, the feast, the Passover feast. And as we were reflecting last night on, um, on Maundy Thursday, it suddenly struck me that the disciples were probably sitting around the table thinking, oh, at last, the feast is here. The busy week, we've done that. Tomorrow's Friday. <sighs> bit of downtime. Chill out a bit. Maybe we can go to a quiet corner and just take some time out. And so there was probably, as there often is, a, a Christmas and Easter and other times, we, we, we have a very busy build-up and then the event itself happens and then we try and give ourselves time afterwards just to, just to um, relax. But Jesus was sitting at that table knowing full well that what lay ahead was going to be anything but relaxing. And so if you've been following this week the, the Easter narrative... If you've been trying to read the scriptures and, and get a feeling for what Jesus' week would have looked like, then you will know that it's been a busy week. And that here we are this morning. Jesus has attended the Passover feast. He's announced that one of his closest friends was on the verge of betraying him. He's... Um, told his dearest disciple, you might think that you love me so much, you'd die for me, but actually at the first sign of trouble, you're going to deny you even know me. He's broken hearts. And then he's gone to Gethsemane, and he's prayed. This morning, I just want to begin with a, a reading from the very beginning of John's Gospel. It's only a couple of verses. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, glory, 
Glory is an interesting theme, isn't it? It's an interesting word because glory means different things to different people. I just want you to, to, to ask yourself for a moment, what is the moment in your life when you have come closest to experiencing glory? When have you felt glory? For some people, it might be a sporting achievement. I haven't got a clicker, but um, can, the, um, can we get the slides going? But we've got a slide somewhere, which is a, is a sporting team that you will all recognise, because it's the only time that the England football team have ever had any success. And so every time there's a major tournament, photos get dragged up, and there was a song which started off as 30 years of hurt, now must be getting on for 60 years of hurt, and there's no sign of it ending anytime soon. Um, but every single time that, that a football tournament happens, people talk about glory. And the picture that we associate with glory is, is one of the pictures of the England football team with the World Cup. Glory. Brilliant. Um, so maybe you kind of, when, you, when I say what's your, what was your moment of glory, maybe you picture sporting success. Maybe you've, you've, you've won something or been part of a winning team or achieved something, set a, set a record or something like that. Or maybe you're not that into sport, like everyone is, and you think, well, actually, my moment of glory was when it came in academic achievement. It was when I, I, I finished a course and I, I graduated or I got the result I wanted. Um, maybe it enabled you to get a job or maybe it was just for prestige and you thought, I can call myself doctor or, or whatever your title might be. Perhaps academic success is your moment of glory. The moment when people get them the mortarboard hats and chuck them up in the air and you see all those pictures, don't you? Um, that might be your moment of glory. Or perhaps when you think of glory, it's not so much a personal thing, perhaps you've got a slightly more um, traditional, maybe, I don't know if that's the right word, but traditional um, idea of glory and perhaps you picture knights, a knight in armour, a noble-looking upstanding knight, someone who went into battle fighting the good fight, never, you know, knights never seem to, to be on the losing side or the wrong side, um, someone who, who, who would go and gloriously defend what was right. Maybe that is um, an image that comes when you think of glory. Or perhaps, perhaps you think of people you've known who have gone to glory and you think of the, the heavenly gates. You think of the, the gates in the clouds opening up, and you think of people going to glory. Glory is somewhere that we go. And yet Scripture turns our idea of glory onto its head. It flips it upside down. Nowhere does Jesus talk about glory being something like the things that we've just talked about? The earthly view of glory 
is completely different to the heavenly view of glory, of what glory is. You see, John wrote his gospel, not whilst events were happening, but it was a response to having seen the risen Christ, having realized and understood everything that had happened, he then thought, I've got to write this down. And so when John, early on in his gospel, writes, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, the glory he's talking about is what we are remembering today. Jesus' moment of glory was not winning a trophy or passing an exam. It was not being victorious in battle or even arriving at the pearly gates. Jesus' moment of glory was hanging on the cross. In a build-up to an earthly achievement, the likes of which I've already described, in the build-up to that, there's anticipation, there's excitement, there's training, there's, there's preparation. We get ourselves into a position where we know that in the moment when we're needed, we are going to be at the top of our game. We've done the revision, or we've done the training, or we've psyched ourselves up for the battle, and we are ready. We are ready because it all depends on us. Jesus' preparation for his moment of glory is completely different. Jesus becomes a vulnerable child. We see in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, Abba, Father, he said, Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And so we're, we see this, this image of Jesus on his knees praying, praying in Gethsemane. And the word he uses is Abba. Now, Abba, I've, I've, every, every definition of what that word means I've looked up, it says that there isn't a word in the English language which is quite sufficient to describe the, 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 what, what is captured by that word. It's got the intimacy of a child saying, Daddy. And yet it's also got the grandeur of a subject saying, Majesty. And Jesus becomes like a, like a vulnerable child. Daddy. Father. Abba. Everything is possible for you. You can do anything. Take this, take this cup from me. Don't, don't make me go through with this. I'm scared. I'm frightened. Jesus was fully God. Yes, we see that in the, the miracles and the healings and the fulfillment of prophecy we see that in the power that he had over nature when he calmed the storm we see turns water into wine when he he walks on water jesus had absolute authority make no mistake jesus was fully god but also jesus was fully man and in this 
beautiful moment, we see the vulnerability that any one of us would share in that moment on his knees, praying, calling out to his father, take this cup from me. Some say that Jesus was the son of God. He, he was supernatural. He didn't feel the pain. Oh, yes, he did. If that had been the case, then he wouldn't have been asking for another way. He would have been boldly going forward. Yeah, bring it on, fine. But no. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. In Jesus' life, we see time after time, he was obedient to God. And because he was obedient to God, there was, there's this, this divine harmony between father and son. There's never a moment where Jesus seems to get obsessed with his own agenda and ignore the will of the father. So often as we go through life, we can, we can be fixated on our own plan our own expectations, our own career path or, or life journey, where we want to get to, the age at which we want to retire or, or the number of kids that we'd like to have or the, the size of the house or where we'd like to, to spend our holidays. And if we become really obsessed with that, then the moment we suddenly realise that that's out of our hands, that we don't have that kind of control and authority, that's, that, that, that's hard. That's really hard because we like to think we are in control. The world tells us that we've got a right to be in control of our own lives. Only we can make the difference. But the example that Jesus sets is he goes where the Father calls him. He does what the Father lines up for him. He prays regularly. He talks to God. And so we see this divine harmony which is a wonderful thing between father and son, between God and man. And so in that moment when we see, the, we see Jesus becoming almost like a vulnerable child, we still see that obedience, that absolute commitment to God. In Luke chapter 22... Luke recalls his take on the same, the same moment in time. In verse 41, we read, Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, there is actually a medical term for this. Um, hematidrosis. Hematidrosis is the name. And it's a very, very, very rare condition. In fact, there was a time in history when, when they thought this was just a figure of speech that Luke has chosen to use that they just meant that Jesus was praying really hard. And it seemed like a slightly odd form of words, but 
you can't actually sweat blood. And then in the trenches of the First World War, I think there were examples before this, but in the recorded ones that I've read about, in the trenches of the First World War, as artillery bombardments were pounding around them and men were called out of the trenches as the artillery finished to stand waiting for the whistle to go over the top, knowing that they were facing machine guns and artillery and they know they're going out into no man's land. They can see the bodies of fallen comrades littering the fields already. And as they stood there, some of them sweat blood. It's when the body goes into a state of, of stress that is so severe that capillaries in the skin burst. And it's, it's not a, literally sweating, but it's, it's, it comes out with sweat out of the pores of the skin. Hematidrosis. Being in anguish, Jesus prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Luke was the first century equivalent of a doctor. He, was, he had interest in medicine. And so he recorded details like this. Jesus was not going to the cross knowing it wouldn't hurt him. Jesus went to the cross totally aware of what he faced. He was in anguish. But he was obedient. Why was he obedient? Because this was his path to glory. Being reduced to a vulnerable child calling Abba, Daddy. Being becoming desperate to the point of, of praying so so earnestly, so intensely, the fear gripping him to a point where he sweats blood. This is his path to glory. This is not an earthly path to glory. This is not the, the sort of the, the training and the preparation and the moment where you think, yeah, come on, I can take this, I can do this. This is not where Jesus was. He was in a place, a place of terror. Why? Because he was fully God, yet fully man. The fully God is shown in his obedience to the Father. The fully man is shown in the fear that he had to overcome. John 17, verses 1 to 5. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed. This is when Jesus is still in the upper room with his disciples before he's gone to Gethsemane. And this is what he prays. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And there we see, there we see Jesus in his glory. 
He calls out, he says, the hour has come. Jesus has spoken many times up to this point. The hour is not yet. This is not my time. We see it firstly in John's gospel when he turns water into wine. Before he performs the miracle, he says to, to, to Mary, my time has not come. He knew that there was a specific journey. He doesn't say, yeah, room full of people, there's a party going on, check this out. Instead, quietly and subtly, he does not want people to know who he is at that point because the time is not right. Jesus is obedient to God's timing. But now, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people. Jesus had authority over all people. That includes, that includes Herod. That includes Pilate. That includes the Pharisees. That includes Judas. That includes every one of those voices that stood there by the roadside shouting, crucify him, crucify him, mocking him as he dragged the cross up the hill. It includes those who held his arms down while the, 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 the stakes were hammered through the hands and the feet. You granted him authority over all people. Not that the authority might be abused. Not that the authority might be used so that Jesus was untouchable. But that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. Jesus knew at this point exactly what he was in for, exactly what he was going to go through. But he sees beyond the human side. He knows that there is a gift of eternal life at stake here. And the only way that he can do that is if he suffers at the hands of those to whom he's going to give the gift. This is a complete upheaval of earthly values. Once the Ukrainian crisis is, comes to an end, whenever that may be, there is going to be a long and difficult path before those two countries are fully reconciled. Because we are human beings and we harbour grudges and we remember things and we know we want revenge, we want to pay people back an eye for an eye, but Jesus came and said, no, no. You pray for your enemies. Even though Jesus knew exactly who was going to put him on the cross, he still gave eternal life to those people. And make no mistake, we are those people just as much as the soldiers and everybody else involved in biblical times. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus went through with the cross. He went through the crucifixion because he knew that he wanted people to be reconciled to God. He went through the suffering and the torture. Evangelism's hard, isn't it? <laughs> it's not nice going out and telling people that I believe in Jesus and people say, what? 
Why? And we can sometimes scrabble around for an answer that, that doesn't sound stupid in the days of instant technology and Google and Amazon deliveries and all the rest of everything else that, that goes on around us. This, this ancient relic, that really? I suppose you believe in Father Christmas and the Easter Bunny too. Throw the tooth fairy in there. Yeah, evangelism's difficult, isn't it? But it's not as difficult as hanging on a cross. But Jesus did that because he wanted those people and us today and those people out there in Norwich and in the rest of the country and in Europe and throughout the whole world, he wanted each and every person to know the one only true living God and Jesus Christ who was sent for us. And so Jesus says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence. The Father never abandoned the Son. Jesus was glorified in the presence of the Father. And we cannot imagine the pain the Father felt seeing the Son crucified. Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Fully man, yet fully God. Jesus, in his glory, hung on a cross, abused by soldiers, despised by priests, mocked by strangers, and abandoned by friends. That's his moment of glory. So that's Jesus' path to glory. And just to, to finish this morning, what's our path to glory? Does our path to glory involve the, 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 the injustice and the mockery and the torture and the floggings and the, the, the nailing and the hanging and the death, the pain and the suffering and the humiliation? No. No. <laughs> If that was the case, then I suspect that we'd have far fewer people here this morning and possibly not even a preacher. Our path to glory is set out by Jesus. It was set out to Jesus on that Maundy Thursday evening when he was with his disciples and he said to them in John 13, a new command I give you, love one another. That's it, that's our path to glory. Love one another. It sounds so simple Especially when we look at the path that Jesus had to follow. Which one would you choose? I know which one I'd choose. Love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so, folks, that means that whatever we have to face as a church, whatever comes through our doors, whatever the world throws at us, and there are challenges out there, there are, there are issues in the world at the moment that the top theologians are only just beginning to grapple with. But we're the front line. The church is the front line because anyone can walk in at any time and say, this is me. This is the life I choose to live. What do you say? What do you say? And we can scrabble around saying, well, oh, I don't know, Scripture says this and the church has done this and this has happened and but society says this and that's really awkward for us. And, but we, we put all that to one side. What does the Bible say? Love one another. 
If we show love first and foremost to any situation that we encounter, to anybody that comes into our church, if we love them as Jesus loved us, as Jesus loves us, then we're going to be starting from the right place in any conversation that we have. Love. We put our own agenda to one side because we love them. We put any, any prejudices to one side because we love them. We put any, any, any of our history personally or socially or, or, or as a tradition, we put it to one side. We love the person and we work from there. That's the path to glory that Jesus sets out for us. Love one another. Love comes at a price though. I think I must have been about eight or nine when I first read Moonfleet. It's a wonderful adventure story and you may or may not have heard of it. It's about smugglers and pirates and all sorts of stuff. It's brilliant. But at the end of it, one of the heroes of the story um, dies a hero's death and on his gravestone it says, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for a friend. And I read that having no idea at all that it came from Scripture. And I thought, oh, wow, what a thing to have on your gravestone. I'd love to have that on my gravestone. God, what a brilliant author that he's thought of that. That's, I love it. And it really stuck with me, and I, I, I remembered it. When I became a Christian, and I was reading John's Gospel one day, I came across those words, and I was, it was like a hammer blow to me, because I suddenly realised what it meant. I suddenly realised that this, this heroic story that I'd read as a kid, full of adventure and excitement, had culminated with, with these words on a gravestone. And that was a hero's grave. And, and I, in my mind, there could be no better epitaph than having that on your headstone. And here is Jesus himself signposting us to what he was about to do. He's, told, he's just told his disciples to love one another. And now, what is the measure of love? Well, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Love is a serious business. Faith is a serious business. How far do we love one another? How strong is the bond that holds us together? Is there anyone that we would die for? Would we die for our church? Or would we walk out the second someone suggesting, suggests changing the colour of the carpet? Well, Jesus laid down his life for you and for me. And that was his moment of glory. We're going to finish this morning by singing two songs, the first of which, in the chorus, it has the words, This is Jesus in his glory, King of heaven, dying for me. Make no mistake, when we see the images of Jesus hanging on the cross, it's not a moment of defeat. It's a moment of glory. And in just a couple of days' time, we will be celebrating the fact that that cross 
is empty. This is Jesus in his glory, King of heaven, dying for me. We're going to sing that together now and celebrate our Saviour.
Let's pray before we sing our closing song. Father God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that Jesus loved us so much that he was obedient to you. He went through the, the horror and the cruelty of the crucifixion. He died on that cross, lonely and lowly for us. Father, we thank you for him. We thank you for sending your son into the world. We thank you for his moment of glory. Because without that moment of glory, Father, we couldn't call you by that name. We couldn't call you Father. We would still have that, that awkward, long, distant relationship with you. But instead, we have the intimacy of knowing God personally. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that because of his pure death on the cross, because of his sinless life and his willingness to follow your plan, our sin is taken away. Our sin is forgiven when we turn to the cross, when we repent. And because of that, one day, when we go to glory, it truly will be glory because we will be with you forever. Father, we thank you for that cross. We thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that come Sunday morning, we will have something to celebrate with anticipation, with gratitude, and with glory. We say together in the name of Jesus, Amen. Amen. We're going to finish by singing, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene.
So before we close this service today, I just want to remind people that on Easter Sunday morning, this is going to be open. We've got six people being baptised. I can't wait. It's going to be a great service of celebration because of what Jesus has done in the lives of those people, because he is just as living and active now as he has ever been. That pool is going to be open, and we're going to be baptising six new believers um, into the love of Christ. So that's a thing to celebrate. If you're, if you're not with us, if you're at home this morning or if you're watching this at another time, then please come along on Easter Sunday morning. We'd love to have you here. Um, friends and family, more than welcome. Let's fill the church and let's celebrate the resurrected Jesus. And we've got hot cross buns and tea and coffee afterwards for those who are here today. So please do join us, tuck in and... Um, Uh, Although this is a sad day, it is also a day that was absolutely necessary in the plan of God to reconcile the Father to his children, and that's us. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for Jesus, we thank you for the cross, and we thank you that this was by no means the end of your glorious story. We thank you for the moment of glory that Jesus pointed to that he went through with. But Father, for us now, we can't help but think that the biggest moment of glory was when that that stone was rolled away, when that tomb was opened, and when Jesus walked out of that tomb, depicting to us the fact that death had been beaten, that no more could death hold us, but instead the path was open for us to have eternity with you. So Lord, we look forward to celebrating that. But today, bless us, we pray. Bless the Passion Play tomorrow and all those involved with it. We pray that the weather will be good, that crowds will come, that more and more people will see your love for them played out in the centre of our city. Father, thank you for all the people who have served today, whether it's refreshments, whether it's music, whether it's the technical team. Father, thank you for this church. Bless us, we pray, as we go out into the world with the name of Jesus in our hearts and on our lips. And in his name we say together, Amen. Amen. Amen.